We're glad you, you made it here today. Um, there were six of us in the first service, uh, other than the band. And the uh, folks in the band had to pass the baskets out, so that was a plus um, for the offering. But that doesn't look like it'll be necessary for this. Uh, I, I, I think that driving in this kind of weather is sort of interesting. You, you learn, you apply a different set of skills than you can, or a different set of rules than you can just day to day. And it's so much funner, like, you know, day to day, at least me, I would never think of just rolling through the intersection um, on a red light. Um, but, you know, on a day like today, that seems to be a good idea, especially if you're on a hill, you're just going to go straight through that. Um, at least I do. Um, no matter who's coming, I want to be in front of them, and I don't want to slow down because I'm afraid I won't get started back up. There's the whole thing about, you know, which lane, which your lane selection. Normally, I'm a very polite driver. If somebody wants to pass me, I'm going to be on the right lane. But for sure, the inside track on Providence is better than the outside track, and I will make everybody, I don't care who they are, police or anybody, go around me on the right side. And I know that the snow, uh, the kind of the, the, the evil of the snow, its hold in my life is broken. When I reach the point where there's enough slush and I begin to try to venture over that right-hand lane and use my car to throw the slush onto the sidewalk at the runners as they go past me. That's a great, having been the, re- the receiver of that, that's a great moment. Sort of, I'd like to think of it as I'm sort of clearing the road. That's my gift to everybody that's going to come behind me. So all kinds of opportunities in driving that you learn. Um, we're talking about calling. We're in the third week of this series. You can see the first, uh, there's all five weeks right there. They're titled. The first one was called. The second week was protected. This week is titled healing. And I'm going to start out saying this at the beginning. I'm going to say that calling occurs at the intersection where God's purpose is spoken to your heart. And then you make a decision as to what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And imagine visually from the air, I think of it this way. Now, this is not meant, it's going to start to sound like this little foot, this footprints thing in the sand. And I, I, I swear it's not going to go that way. I hope it's not going to be quite that cheesy. But I tried to imagine it like it, it was a movie of some director was shooting it. And how, how they would shoot it. I was thinking they would, they would shoot it after it had occurred in a snowy field, this, this intersection between God and man. And it would be like footprints in a heavy snow. And it would be God coming from one from one direction, and there would be another set of footprints for, 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 a, for a person coming from another. And I wonder in some situations, or some, some of those uh, interactions, if when those tracks came together, they might just look like a, a straight intersection on 90-degree angles where nothing happened. That is, the two people went past each other. They never spoke. They never made eye contact. They just went straight past each other. And that intersection between God's person God's purpose and a person's decision of what to do with the rest of their life. And maybe in some cases those tracks would come across in another field and as they came together there might be some brief dance, some interactions, some some signs left in the snow. But then after a time maybe the tracks would go off together and then they would veer off into two separate directions. And then there's a third set of tracks where those footprints come together and... Uh, from two different directions, and as they meet in the field, there's a, uh, a circling, if you will, of where a conversation happened. And after some amount of looking at that, those tracks, you'd see that those tracks wander off together. Not two feet, but four. Two people walking together, and they go off through the field and ultimately into the woods where you can't see them anymore. That's sort of a visual image for what that intersection would be like. Um, I'm going to pull this up here. Hang on a second. I would say that God's uh, tracks are not very hard to find in the Bible. We're looking at this this life of Moses as sort of our sto- as our story. 
if you would, for, uh, for, for talking about calling. And uh, in the book of Exodus, the writer tells us uh, about God's purpose. And God's purpose is really clear and very easy to get. It goes like this. In Exodus 3, 7 through 10, says, um, The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the, land of, from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, I guess, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. That is God's purpose, or at least I would say this, that this is the first half of his purpose. And it's clear what God is doing. He's doing everything here himself. He's doing the seeing. He's doing the hearing. He's doing the concerning. He's doing the coming down. He's doing the rescuing, and he's doing the bringing. This is the first half of purpose. It is as the prophet Isaiah said, and, and who instantly Jesus said that, that was his pur- purpose also. In fact, Jesus, when he made his first uh, his first uh talk in a religious setting like this one he used this these verses from isaiah and said these things of himself he said um that that his purpose was to bring good news that captives are being released that the blind can see that the oppressed are set free and the day of this work is not tomorrow the day of that work is today and the place of that work is here that work is happening here and now and jesus brought it in its fullness um even though we may not always see it that's the uh, proclaiming his work is the first half of his purpose. And the second half of his purpose is this, that he would accomplish that work through us with his own strong right arm so that he could bring glory to himself. So the second half of his purpose is this, I'm going to say it again, that he is doing that work through us, through people like us, his, his, his sons and daughters. Um, and so I imagine that if this meeting uh, happened between God and Moses had been in an open field, it wasn't. But let's imagine for a moment, if you would, that this meeting between God and Moses happens in a snowy field out there, you know, near Statesville today. Um, that the two are coming from different directions. And as they come, as they're coming together, God is singing this out loud, that he is freeing captives, that the gospel is being preached. That the, the prisoners are being set free, that blind eyes are seen, and he is singing this out, and he is filling the whole world with his song. And at some moment, the two come together, and it's as though their eyes lock on each other. And they stand for a brief moment, and in that moment, God says this. He says, I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them, so now you go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites out, of, Israelites, out of Egypt. That is the second half of his purpose, that we would do his purpose. He would, his purpose would be accomplished through us. Now, a conversation takes place between them after that moment. And I, uh, I'm going to tell a story on a friend at risk that it will get back to him, and I hope he will forgive me if it does. But I have a friend who has a sim- seemingly large personal space. He does not like it when you get in his personal space. Um, you know, I don't know what the normal distance is, 18 inches or 20 inches, something like that. This friend has probably about six more inches that he needs in a conversation. One of the funniest things you can do to him, it's so great, is you can drive him around a room just by getting into that space. And 
And I do this at times because I just think it's funny. And, uh, you know, if I wanted to go that way, I just have to veer a little bit to his right and he will go that way. And we can just go around in a circle in a conversation. I want him to go over there. I just go over here. Just wherever you want him to go, you just kind of get in a space and you can drive the conversation. And I imagine that this conversation between Moses and God is a bit like that. With uh, Moses has some concerns and he's throwing out some questions, but as God is answering him, he's kind of getting in Moses' space and Moses is feeling awkward and eventually he's, he's in a corner. It's an open field, but he, he feels trapped. And I imagine that God drives that conversation in that way with him. He, um, see, Moses knows something about Pharaoh because he was raised in the house of Pharaoh. And, and Pharaoh was obviously a great and powerful ruler in that time. He had, he had his own holy men. He had his own magicians. He had a great army. He had a ne- an economic might. A lot, it was largely built upon the, sla- the, the slavery of the, Is- the, Israel, the children of Israel. And, uh, and he knew... <laughs> Come on, he knows. He knows that Pharaoh is not going to let the Israelites, the Israel slaves, go, just because somebody comes to him and asks him or tells him to let him go. And so he asks. Um, he really just wants some some firepower. And Bruce has talked about some of these things that happened earlier. You know, he he he, he says, "Please tell tell me what I should tell them if they say who sent me. Tell me your name." And so God gives him a name, and then he start, then he then he asks another question. And it goes like this. It's found in Exodus 4.1. And the answer then comes in 6.8. Um, he says, um, Moses answered, okay, as God is getting in his space there, he says, what if they do not believe me? Or they don't listen to me and they say, the Lord did not appear to you. Then the Lord said, well, put your hand inside your cloak right now. And so Moses put his hand to his cloak. And when he took it out, it was leprous like snow. Now, leprosy or skin disease in that time were... Uh, really, really bad news because there was no real easy treatment for them and it meant that you, if you had one of these diseases, you were going to be sent out and you were going to be alone and lonely likely for the rest of your life. So this really was, uh, t- to take on a disease like this was really a wound. I mean, it was very, very severe. Uh, very, very severe. It's hard for us to imagine just how severe it was. So he put it, he took it out and it was white like snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said, and so Moses put his hand back into his cloak and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. And the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to you, the first, or pay attention to the first miraculous sign, then maybe they'll believe the second. The writer doesn't really tell us um, why God chose such a greatly feared disease for a sign. But, but I imagine that when Moses pulled his hand out of his cloak, this was not a... Uh, just a very clean interaction. I imagine his heart fell. It just fell. I'm sorry. I imagine his heart absolutely fell. And and when I tell you what I think the implication of this, I expect your heart to fall as well. I think the implication is that God was saying, "I will not show myself strong in the places where you are strong. I prefer to show myself strong in the places where you are weak." in your depravity, in your unholiness, in your brokenness, in your shamefulness, in your woundedness, in your extreme brokenness, I prefer to show myself strong. Incredibly, incredibly bad news. We're not unlike Moses. Um, we've been talking about calling, and we, like Mark was saying earlier, we know for a fact 
that the thing that keeps so many people on the sidelines is their woundedness. It's, it's the language of if this, then. If God would do this for me, then I would move forward. I'm wounded, so I'm hurt so bad in this place. If I could just experience some healing there, then I would get off the sidelines. And we want a sign like Moses. And often when we ask for a miracle, a sign, or some other kind of proof, what God says more or less is, look at the wound I've already given you. That's your sign. Or he may, like in this case, say, oh, and by the way, here's another wound. It is really something to make your heart fall. Um, Alan Love and, uh, and Steve and I were interacting some about, Steve Whippy were interacting some about the talk this week. And, and you know, how to parse this out this morning. And Alan, I'm just going to read it from an email he sent, sent back to us. And Alan uh, had it this way. He, 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 Alan, I don't know. Alan's over there. I'm looking to see Bruce. Oh, excuse me. Excuse me. Uh, Bill Morgan's not here today. This is, we were interacting. And I want to tell you a little bit about Bill Morgan. Some of you know Bill. Some of you don't. He's somebody's been around from the very beginning. He usually sits over here. He's a tall, thin guy with a, I don't know, I think an unseemly beard. But, you know, that, there you go. Um, he's a close friend of ours. He's been here. We've known, Kathy and I have known him since we've, and Roxanne, since we moved here 20 years ago to Charlotte. And about 19 years ago, his neck was broken. Now, Bill lives with pain every day of his life. Chronic pain. A real wound that's visible for everybody that sees him. And a wound that all of his friends know. And can, we can, you can just tell how Bill feels when you see him by the way he carries his shoulders if you've been around him much. And so Alan sent this email back, and this is what he said. He said, The Exodus passage seems to teach us that God can heal what is broken. That God is not limited. If he needs to take away our brokenness, he can. If he allows brokenness to remain, he's doing so for a purpose. I think about Bill Morgan. Why doesn't God take away his brokenness and restore strength to his body? Doesn't it make sense that a strong, whole, physically well Bill is better than a limited one? But that betrays my shallow view of wholeness and my short-sighted perspective on what God is doing in my life and through my life. Somehow, we have to address with our community the tension between the reality that God can heal and does heal, but doesn't always heal. Sometimes God wants to use our brokenness in our calling. Fast forward in this passage, and you will see that God didn't recruit a champion in Moses to be his spokesperson. He basically recruited somebody that said they couldn't speak. And this is what, this last sentence of Alan is really right on the money. He says, God doesn't limit himself to using our strengths. God won't be limited by our strengths. And God won't be limited by our weaknesses either. God's purpose will be done. He is God after all. His will will not be thwarted. I don't know why Bill's neck was broken. And, and nobody can tell me that um, in a way that would maybe fully make me... Uh, confident I guess I don't know why what has happened to you has happened to you I don't know why somebody took something from you at some time something that was so valuable that it was done intentionally maliciously and it was lost in you I don't know why you feel so much shame about some part of your life and you want to be free of that shame I don't know why you're wounded, and I don't know how or when or if God will heal you fully, at least not in this life. 
What I do know about this area is that this is why the resurrection is so important. Because the resurrection answers in its finale that if not in this world, then in the next. That while there may be no healing here or substantial healing here, in the resurrection, there is a complete and full healing for all of us. So until that day, we will live with wounds. And in those wounds, you find the places where God will show himself strong. God's, the wisdom of people, the wisdom of men, is foolishness to God, and the wisdom of God is foolishness to men. God prefers that his glory and his strength be shown in our weakness. I'm going to change the subject a little bit here and go a little bit different direction for a minute. Talk about that conversation in the field. I think when we approach God about this area of calling, we approach Him in the only way that we know how to, which is, forgive the word, but it's in our flesh. It's what we know. It's our experience. It's how we interact with people every day. That's what I mean by flesh. It's in the way we naturally or normally think. And so when we come to God, we approach Him as though, if you will, we're looking for a job. We think we need a good resume. We think we need experience. We think we need a letter of recommendation to get a good spot on the team. We see it as a sort of negotiation, and if we lack any one of those things, what we prefer to do is uh, put off into the whole, the whole discussion our weaknesses and our flaws and, and our black marks. We think... Uh, we approach the conversation as a negotiation and less for the dance that it is. If we're a dance, then none of those things would matter. And all that would matter would be that we would allow him to lead and that we would follow his steps across this kind of cosmic dance floor. We receive calling in the same way that we received our salvation. There's a, there's a, a wrong thinking that's in our head, all people, that says, you know, well, I kind of get in with God one way, but after I'm in, I can behave the way I've always behaved, and that'll be okay. But it's not. You start. We start by grace, and we and we and we move in the middle by grace, and we end by grace. Everything in the Christian story, everything in the Christian system, is built upon grace, about unmerited favor, about what God is doing for us, and not about what we're doing in a transactional way with Him. Um, that can be pretty unsettling. But we're not, but here's the thing about our calling. We're not incompetent in our calling because we're wounded. That's really good news. We're really incompetent in our calling because we will not rely on God to lead us gracefully. We prefer our own flat-footed steps. They are our steps after all. But we are called to dance. Now, there's a couple reasons why this is really good news. And I think that this is going to make sense for you. Um, when I explain it. Okay. I hope it will anyway. If I get the right spot here. Okay. Here's why you need grace. Here's why your calling has to be by grace. Because if you're really competent, you're really gifted, really smart, don't have any visible flaws, um, then God's not going to get any glory and His purpose won't be served. People will always think it was you. Um, And in the end, your life will end on the rocks of conceit somewhere. That's why Paul said about his own life. This is Paul was a man, the Apostle Paul was a person of great, great uh, thinking skills and, and, and great leadership. And in the end, he had some kind of a, what he called a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. 
that was sent into him and he received it. He prayed that God would remove it and God wouldn't remove it. And he said that it was sent so that God could keep him from conceit. If, if, if you're that sort of person, um, then you need a wound or you'll end up like John Edwards, whose story we saw on the paper this week. There's a funny thing about, about this but in this graceful walk, but you know, our calling in some way has to stay in a buoyancy with our character. We don't gain character also by hard work, by the way, but that's a, different, that's a different talk. But they have to remain in tandem. They have to remain in a buoyancy with each other. And if the water level rises on our, on our calling too high and our character doesn't follow, at some point, that water will level. And that's what happened to John Edwards' life. And so, it can't be that your calling comes from your competency. Because if it is, at some point, there'll be a leveling but the, there'll be a level in your life that's painful. And it really can't be um, this way. If you're really wounded, as some of us are, and I know you are, I'm not minimalizing that at all, then, then what you will do is you will dwell on your incompetency and you will self-disqualify yourself for the rest of your life. And you too, just like the proud person, will remain on the sidelines when you were created from the very beginning of time to be in the game. You know, really... I've said this before, but it's really true. Really, the person that's self-disqualifying themselves is really a prideful person as well. Because when you're stroking your, your, your self-disqualification, your shame, those things, what you're really saying is, I'm so wounded, I'm special. You really can't heal this, God. You really can't take this away. You really can't work through me. I'm special. I'm a special case. And it's another form of pride. Paul knew something about resisting the gravity of his own strengths and flaws. Like I said, he had these tremendous gifts and talents, and at the same time, he carried this thorn in his flesh. He also um, had this unique ability to, uh, or this unique experience where uh, he would found and put these churches in place, and he'd pour his life into people, and then they would turn on him. (laughs) They would betray him, much in the same way that people betrayed Christ. And uh, he had this experience with the church that he, he founded in Corinth, that after he founded it and had it going pretty well and he had left and was, uh, had, had been away for a while, that some of the leaders there turned against him and said he wasn't really fully an apostle for a couple of reasons. He said, first of all, he wasn't the twelve. Only the apostles, the people that actually saw Jesus, could be the twelve. And so he wasn't a real apostle. And they said, secondly, that he was teaching some things about the Christian life, that, uh, that he was teaching some things about this life of faith that, that Jesus didn't teach himself. And so, um, and so he, couldn't, he wasn't a real apostle. And so in 2 Corinthians, he lays out a strong defense about his calling, regarding his calling. It's going to show up, showing up here now. And this is that defense. It's found in 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17, and it goes on from there. And it goes this way. He says, But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession, and in Christ, in Christ through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. The one, to the one we are the smell of death, and to the other the fragrance of life. Let's put that there. And who is equal for such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? No, you yourselves are a letter written on your hearts, known and read by everybody. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with the ink, not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. 
Such confidence as this is ours through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent ministers of, of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This, um, this passage is really, uh, very, uh, really very near and dear to me. Um, when I became a Christian, uh, more, more years uh, than most of you are in age uh, ago, um, a guy named Rod Grapp mentored me for, discipled me or mentored me for the first year. And all we did was we just studied this passage, basically, and a few more, a few more after it for like a year. And actually it was this book right here. It's called Authentic Christianity. You can look at it later if you want. You want to come and take a look at it. But um, it's an amazing passage. What we can take from this part, part of this passage is that what Paul is saying is that um, our strengths and weaknesses are not the marks of a called life. Your woundedness is not necessarily the mark of your called life any more than your strength is. The marks of a called life are the ones that originate in God's own character and that he plants into your life and that he grows and that grows in you and that they bloom by grace. And in this section, I'm just going to go through these. There's really sort of five of these marks that are marks of a called life. So Paul, in being challenged, changes this, this argument about, about um, calling. And basically, he's going to say that he's competent because God has made him competent. And these are the marks of his competency. He says, first of all, there is an unquenchable gratitude or optimism in authentic calling. He starts this passage, but thanks be to God. And it is not a hollow thanks or a fake thanks. It is one that is real and it is one that is true. Paul, if you read the, read the stories in Acts... What you can see is that this was borne out in his life on many occasions. One in particular was this, that Paul was in a place called Philippi. And there he and a guy that he was working with, or working, was, was working with, named Silas, were preaching the gospel. And they were trying to establish a church there. And as they were doing that, some people in the city became frustrated and angry. And they beat them and they had them arrested and they had them thrown into prison. And while they were in prison that night, chained if you will, they began to sing hymns to God. In that day, a prison was not like... I mean, prisons are bad enough as they are now. But can you imagine... A, people did, Can you imagine what prison was like in that era? They didn't build nice buildings. They, they didn't like try to... They, there wasn't necessarily food. There wasn't a place to go and to go to the bathroom. I mean, prisons in that era were, were pretty bleak and pretty awful. And in the midst of that place, with wounds on their backs from the beatings they received, they began to sing hymns. They had that kind of gratitude in their heart. Something that really came from the Spirit, not from something that they worked up on their own. One of the marks of this calling is unquenchable optimism and quenchable gratitude. And he says that there's also unvarying success. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. And, and this can get lost on us here because I really think that this particular translation has this wrong. Um, but the image here is of this. It was common in that day, listeners would know, that when the Roman army went out and they conquered, that what they would do afterwards is they would, they would come back into town with those that they had conquered. And at the front of that parade, if you will, would be the main officer who had done the conquering. And as he would return back into town, 
this, with this triumphal procession. There would be incense, there would be celebration, trumpets would be blaring, and he would be at the end of that, that procession. And then on down to the various ranks. I imagine it's Roman, so if Cecil B. DeMille was doing this, there'd be some cool chariots or something. And at the very back were the vanquished, were the defeated. And what they knew is that they were going at best to a life of slavery, and at worst, death. And, and so it's that when, when we hear a triumphal procession, we think that God's leading us in this triumphal procession, and it's, it's going to be all roses. In that imagery, though, it is God who is riding at the front of the triumphal procession, not us. C.S. Lewis said that we serve a God who stooped to conquer us. We're at the back. We're at the back. And the implication there is that there's unvarying success, but it's God's success and not our own. And, and you can look at something like this and say, now, unvarying success seems a little bit strong. In God who always leads us in triumph. Really? Really? Because I got, I got some wounds and I got some battle scars and things haven't always gone well. But seen in the context of God's entire purpose, that He is pronouncing that good news has come, and that he will, in time, bring the completion of that, it is unvarying success. God will not be thwarted. Moses, uh, you know, I gave you, told you about the sign of the, you know, the, the hand. He had another sign. Uh, he had many others, but he had the sign that Bruce talked about last week with the snake. He went and he did those signs, just like God told him to do. And when he did them, some people believed, and some people did not. But in the scope of it, over the long term, he led the people out of Egypt, and after an even longer time, they came into the promised land. Unvarying success. The will of God and the purpose of God won't be stopped. He talked about this unforgettable fragrance. And I mentioned the, you know, this, this, the, the incense and all that going on. You know, I have a mother-in-law with Alzheimer's. And one of the first thing that goes in Alzheimer's is your ability to smell. And it's really sad because, because, uh, because smell is... Uh, is the strongest connection to memory. When we smell something, we, it's more likely to create a lasting memory than sight or touch or taste or any of the other senses, hearing. It is the strongest sense. And I, I don't know this for a fact, my understanding is that, that when, when babies look for milk, they smell for it. They can smell it. They can smell their own mother's milk and know their mother's breast. Um, so, I mean... We are called to be that kind of a fragrance that when people smell your life, it is authentic and that they will know you. And that smelling you, they will have smelled God. Now, they may like that and they may not. From one, a fragrance from life to life and to other, a fragrance from death to death. And that's okay. Even if you're a people, if you're a people pleaser, that won't feel very comfortable. He talks about an unimpeachable integrity. He does this in several ways. I'm just going to throw these out real quick. He talks about being people of sincerity. He's really just talking about living lives of honesty. Now that means you don't need to cover if you're covering a wound. It means you can be pretty open about it. He talks about being sent or commissioned. You know, this kind of calling has goals and it achieves those goals. It's not just something that's sort of out there in a, in a, in a real ambiguous way. You're sent and commissioned in a real concrete way. How about transparency? Search me, O oh God. 
there's any wicked way in me, you know, take it away from me. That kind of openness and transparency. And I think that really that element alone, if you're going to focus on any of these four elements of integrity and integrous life, is really the most, maybe the most important one for people of our age and of our ilk. That, um, that living lives that everybody knows you're broken. Everybody knows you're broken. To be broken and to stand in need of grace just means you're human. You don't have to hide it. Be transparent. And he talks there about authority. He uses that, but tells us that by using this really quick phrase, in Christ. We're not speaking in Kurt, you know, or speaking in, insert your own name here, Joel, whatever. We're speaking in Christ. And that's the kind of authority that comes outside of ourselves. And there's a sort of un, undeniable integrity he's talking about here. When they begin to challenge his authority, he says, look, you are written on our hearts and we are written on yours. So there's an undeniable reality of our work and of its measure, of what it's accomplished and where it's going. And that work is itself written on the lives of other people. Not in a stack of money, not in a big building, not in all the things that people like to measure. It's written really in people's lives. When Moses was faced his call early in his life, early in his called life, and, and God came to him, he said, who shall I tell them? sent me if they do not believe. And Paul, having been walking in his climb for a little bit longer than Moses and having experienced these markings, said something similar but a little bit more mature. He said, who is equal to this task? Who is equal to this sort of task? And then Paul answers that question. He says, apart from God, none of us are equal to that task. But it is God who has made us competent. And we receive that competency by our continuing reliance on Him. I won't go into the details on them, but I had two real serious wounds. Had more since then, but two very serious wounds, I think, at the, the moment when I came to faith in God. And one of them was, one of those was, I mean, it was absolutely removed in the moment. So much so that my family, who's no one else was Christians, remarked about this change in my character and my change. That way I changed. It was remarkable. It was that healing that you really hope and you dream of. But there is another wound in my heart that did not go away. And after a lot of wrestling with it, a lot of anger, I, at some point, I think, was asking God, why not this too? Why not this too? The other one is gone. Why this one? This one is plaguing me. This one speaks to me. This one brings me down. This one is really the one I need fixed, not the other. And I really felt, and this is just as a kid, I really got felt, he just spoke to me and said, ah, but that one, that one you can rely on me day by day. We need a kind of reliance that isn't once and done. We need a kind of reliance on God that, that is daily, minute by minute. And that is the beauty of the wound. Apart from God, none of us is up to the task, but those that rely on God are made competent. I'm not saying that you shouldn't confront your wound. If somebody has wronged you, then you should forgive them and you should do the work to make that forgiveness happen. If you are carrying shame, lay it down. There's no shame unless you continue to carry it. Just lay it down and walk away from it. Um, if you are in some form of sin or something that in your conscience is telling you is wrong, stop it, stop it, stop it, and repent. If, uh, I'm not saying to not do those things, but what I am saying is that none of those things must keep you on the sidelines. In fact, 
if you will move off the sidelines and you will answer your call and you will move into that, what I think you will find is that your courage will grow and that God will increase your healing as you answer that call. By moving while you still seem wounded, your ability to rely on Him will grow more and more and more. And your reliance on God, which is the thing that makes you more, your reliance on God will make you more and more confident. Reliance on God trumps your woundedness. Reliance on God trumps your woundedness. God is saving the world. He's calling you to the same purpose. You're not competent to do that work on your own. That's okay. We're competent because He has made us competent. And the more we rely, the more competent we will be. Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And thank you for... uh, Thank you that our calling is not a function of our woundedness or our own ability to take care of things or to fix them. Thank you that we can get in the game right where we're at right now. Thank you for driving us around that snowy field in this conversation. And thank you for helping our hearts to respond and say, okay, I'll go forward with you. Amen. We're going to take up an offering. And um, we, give, we take offerings not because we have to, um, because we want to. And so um, give and do it with joy. Thanks. We were all given voices. Um, just use them this morning. Um, our God inhabits our praise. Our God dwells in our worship, and uh, and we have so much freedom in Him to do it. And uh, the Spirit's here. Let's just raise your voices with us. <laughs>